Today, I'd like to share with you some thoughts about botulinum toxins. Everybody's familiar with the typical uses of it. I'm sure everybody in the room has had a chance to use it, at least I, I suspect you have. And I want to share with you some of the interesting things that I've come across in the literature over the past couple of years, and you may even be able to apply it in your offices and help your patients in some unique ways. Um, I don't have any conflicts of interest uh, uh, for this talk, except that I have been a, a consultant for medicists. I'm still waiting for that first honorarium, but who knows, maybe it'll come sometime. But all of the uses, virtually all of the uses that we're going to be discussing today are off-label uses, and you should know that. Uh, in terms of these off-label uses, it was kind of interesting that uh, just this year there was an article in the New York Times that talked about Botox in particular and reported that Allergan was indicating that there would be sales of $90 million, um, rather, uh, excuse me, $1.3 billion as opposed to the $90 million that they had reported in 1998. They indicated that sales were divided between the therapeutic and cosmetic uses, but they did expect that the therapeutic uses would actually overcome those of the cosmetic uses shortly. And it is interesting that Allergan has applied for patents for, for more than 90 patents for other uses. Uh, of course, it's probably going to be a good uh, stock to watch. Um, and now we have another botulinum toxin that we will be able to use in our office and we're familiar with Dysport, which was recently approved. And of course, there's more Botox, or botulinum toxins rather, on the way. You've got PureTox by Johnson & Johnson that's on the fast track. And there's even studies uh, indicating that there may be a topical Botox, or botulinum toxin, that may be available. So I, I think most of us are aware of how these products are used in the main. And I've sort of indicated these in terms of the uh, font, and you can tell that, of course, the glabellar, periocular, and forehead creases tend to be those that are most commonly treated. And I think that most people in the room have had a chance to try using this product for some of the other facial uses, including the bunny lines and the periolar creases, and maybe you're even trying to use it on the depressor anguli oris muscle. And as a reminder, let's just go over some of the anatomy. Now, unfortunately, with two screens, it's hard to, to use a pointer on both sides. So I'll try and be fair to both sides by switching my pointer. But basically, um, I guess I can be equally unfair, because I don't think the pointer is really very helpful. But, but you can see that, that frontalis muscle, that large muscle on the forehead. And under the frontalis muscle, between the eyebrows, is the corrugator muscle. And that's the muscle that's most frequently treated that's the one that's causing those creases between the eyes. It's important to know the location of that muscle because if you'd like to be specific when you're treating that muscle, you just don't want to have it affected by diffusion because if you do have it, if you do treat that way, then obviously you're going to have that diffusing effect affect muscles you may not want it to, to uh, impact. So be aware of the anatomy of that muscle. The um, periocular muscles, you'll know, is a sphincter-type muscle that runs around the eye. And it's actually broken up into three different segments. And you might be able to see that there's a pre-tarsal segment. That's the one closest to the eyelashes. And that's the part of the muscle that's actually used for unconscious blinking. When we're blinking our eyes, that's the portion of the muscle that's activated. The preceptal portion of the muscle is the muscle that we use when we sort of make a more exaggerated blink. And the preorbital muscle portion of the muscle is the one that comes into effect when we're making a hard closure of the eyes. 
And that's the reason why this particular muscle is so helpful to inject when we're trying to elevate the brows. Because as you know, when you look in the mirror and you try and close your eyes real tightly, you'll see the way the brows are pulled down. So this is the part of the muscle that you're trying to inject when you're trying to get a little bit of a brow lift. The other muscles that we commonly inject are shown here. Um, one thing I want to point out is notice the location of that zygomaticus major and minor muscle. And again, I apologize for this pointer, but it's running diagonally right underneath the orbicularis muscle toward the corner of the mouth. And you can see that if you go down a little too low on that muscle, you're going to affect that zygomaticus muscle. And what's going to happen is that your patient is not going to be able to smile as much on that side, and you may get some asymmetry. The depressor angular oris is that triangular-shaped muscle down by the, on, the, on the side of the chin, and that's the one that may help to elevate the corner of the mouth. It seems as if this is a, a muscle that some people are successful injecting and some just don't find so satisfactory. Um, the most common site for injecting um, the Botox in the glabellar area is, of course, using this three or this five-point uh, system. But I want you to realize that this is not etched in stone, and many other specialties use Botox or, or botulinum. Forgive me, I'm going to probably be making that error all, all lecture. But many other specialties use the material in, in differing ways. And it, it really is something that you have to be comfortable with. You don't have to feel locked into using it in one way, because frankly, there have been no studies that show one particular method is better than the other. This is an indication of how some of the um, uh, ophthalmologists use this particular medicine. In this particular instance, if you're injecting very close to the eyelashes and affecting that pre-tarsal portion of the muscle, you can actually reduce the orbicularis oculi hypertrophy that some people have. When people smile, that muscle is very, very large. That can't be treated by a transconjunctival blepharoplasty. That's muscular hypertrophy, and this is a way of treating that. This is also the area that's been uh, described in the literature for some of the Asian patients. When they make a smile, it turns out that the eyelid, the whole eye complex it becomes very, very narrow, and this is a way of widening the eye. Um, this, is an air, this is an indication of how you're going to treat just the, the fine creases on the lower lid. Again, treating that preceptal portion uh, of the orbicularis muscle. And this is just an indication, again, how the material can be used in different ways. I would imagine that many of you have been taught to inject the uh, periocular area with three injections. But you can see how other specialties would use this medicine differently. And everything can work if it's in the right hands. But let me share with you some additional uses that you may not be so familiar with. This happens to be a, an article that showed after Mohs surgery, when you make a closure, sometimes those closures can be pretty tight, and they're going to be affected by the muscular action that the patient uh, uses by just daily expressions. By using Botox after these surgical procedures or even pre-treating before, you can enhance the result of your closure. There have been studies that show that it can be helpful when doing CO2 laser resurfacing or doing chemical peels as well. There have been, there's been one study that showed that it might even help the results of IPL. However, in more recent studies, this has not been confirmed. Um, in terms of can Botox be affected if you're going to be using it in combination with other modalities, there was a study that showed that when using Botox at the same time that you're doing a laser treatment, an IPL treatment, or even radiofrequency, there's no impact on the results that you might expect. And of course, the other surgical procedures where it might be helpful include the more complicated procedures such as lateral canthopexy 
and an endoscopic brow lift. So anytime a wound is under tension, one of the things you can do to help your closure is to use a little Botox to minimize the effect of the muscular action on that particular wound. And what I learned as I was researching this particular presentation is if there's, been a, if there's a muscle in the body, it's already been injected with Botox. If there's a symptom that's related to nerves, it's already been attempted to be treated. And frequently, Botox will, or botulinum toxin will also act on multiple end organs. It's not only affecting muscles, but it's also affecting nerve endings and even glandular structures. And this has come into use for some of the, uh, uh, some of the newer indications. As a reminder, let's just talk about how a botulinum toxin impacts the interaction between the nerve and the muscle. And I'm specifically talking about muscle because when it comes to other end organs, it may act a little differently. But you might recall that Botox or botulinum toxin will actually bind to the neuron. It gets incorporated into the end of the neuron. And as a result, it prevents the acetylcholine vesicles from binding to the cell wall and going through the cell wall to affect the muscle. And when you're talking about botulinum toxin A, known as Botox, that affects the, the uh, molecule called SNAP25. When you're dealing with, uh, with the other botulinum product known as Dysport, that affects the molecule known as VAMP. Why do people get better? Well, it turns out that these end organs actually sprout newer, smaller end organs. So the effect on the, uh, the binding of the botulinum toxin to the cell wall actually is a lasting effect, but you have these sprouts that come off the end of the nerve, and they allow the transmission of the acetylcholine through the, uh, through the nerve down to the end organ. And as I said, when it comes to pain relief or other, other effects, it turns out that there probably are other mechanisms of action. In terms of uh, uh, such things as uh, secretory organs, you're, we know that it affects the secretion of sweat, saliva, and mucus, and it probably does so by affecting substance P and glutamate. But there are other uses that I'm going to touch on now, and I'm going to show you how these materials can actually have a number of other effects. Can, it can actually enhance the enjoyment of a Broadway show, can make a long car trip a little more tolerable, can actually improve your figure, decrease your expense on tissues, improve your oratory capabilities, and of course decrease your dry cleaning costs. So hopefully by the end you'll see how these things can be achieved by using botulinum toxins. Well, it turns out that the genitourinary system um, sometimes has problems related to injuries, tumors, or other particular um, uh, uh, diseases that affect the genitourinary system. As a result, people have trouble with bladder control. Sometimes the bladder doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, uh, fill. Sometimes the bladder too easily wants to release what it contains. It turns out that botulinum toxin can improve both incontinence and retention. And the way it does that is that when it's injected into the muscle, what they call the detrusor muscle, it actually leaves, relieves, that, relieves that muscle, and as a result, there's not the, the need for, um, uh, for, for urinary frequency. So this is an indication where it can help in the urinary system. It also can help with interstitial cystitis, which is a painful inflammatory condition. And again, it, it does this by affecting pain fibers as well as the muscle in the bladder. 
For men, of course, we know that there's a high incidence of prostatic hypertrophy as we grow older. And there's many different treatments for this, including medication, surgery, minor surgery, and even major surgery. It turns out that botulinum toxin has been injected into the prostate and has been shown to do two things. Number one, it can improve a urinary flow such that urinary retention is not so bad, but it also can reduce the size of the prostate because it creates apoptosis within the enlarged prostate. This has been reported in at least two studies, mostly out of the Far East. When it comes to the upper GI system, injecting botulinum toxin into the esophageal sphincter can relieve achalasia, which is a swallowing problem. So this makes it easier for people to swallow. Well, this may not be so good in terms of weight, but in addition, um, Botox has other benefits. In this particular article, they showed that botulinum toxin can indicate whether an endoscopic sphincterotomy for, for biliary uh, pain is going to be successful because it will predict the benefit of this procedure. Anal fissures. This is the third most common problem of this area after hemorrhoids and constipation. And it turns out that this can be as a result of an overactivity of that anal sphincter muscle. Injection of Botox has frequently been shown to decrease the sensitivity of this. And I assure you, this will decrease the discomfort of a long trip in your car. Um, now, after internal sphincterotomy, there's been problems with recurrent, sphincter, recurrent uh, fissures. And again, injection of botulinum toxin has been shown to reduce that. As I said, pain from many sources has been reduced, and of course, pain from, from hemorrhoids and post-hemorrhoidectomy conditions has been reduced. Turns out that if you inject botulinum toxin into the fundus and the antrum of the stomach, you will actually decrease emptying, you will increase capacity, and you will reduce the person's appetite. Now, this may seem like a, a, a stretch, but in some instances, maybe this is less of an of a intrusive procedure than having one of those operations to reduce the size of the stomach. So an interesting application of Botox that certainly is going to help some people's figure. Now, I, I do think that many of you heard about the uses for botulinum toxin when it comes to pain and spasm. And these are a couple of those indications. And you can see that it's been used on such things as migraine headaches, trigeminal neuralgia, torticollis and other spasmatic uh, diseases, um, as, as well as others. The dystonias are disorders that result from movement that's involuntary but action-induced. And this, this is usually will happen after injury or inflammatory diseases. They can occur either as a result of a disease and sometimes they occur idiopathically. And these are some of them that we'll see. This is an example of torticollis, which can occur secondarily as a result of the way you might be sleeping in bed, but it can also occur as a result of an inflammatory condition or it can even be congenital. And this is one of the early approved uses of botulinum toxin. But patients have involuntary facial motions. These are called synkinesis. And this occurs with such things as the Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, when people have herpes zoster affecting uh, one of the branches of the facial nerve. 
And as that nerve recovers, what happens is that there are other nerves that affect adjacent muscles. So somebody will, will speak, and at the same time, they'll be twitching their eye as they speak. And of course, botulinum toxin has been very helpful to denervate these particular nerves. Here are some examples of the way people may look. You see the patient on your right who may be pursing his lip, and at the same time, the left eye is getting smaller. Um, the person on the, the far left, you see when she's moving her mouth, her eyebrow is getting raised. This is an indication of a patient that had a, a, a synchinesis problem, and it's before and after treatment. And obviously, uh, one would ex as one would expect, the injection of botulinum toxin reduces that. These are the injection sites when patients have these issues, but I think many of you already know that when somebody has a problem with, with botulinum, that you're going to treat with botulinum toxin, basically you treat where the problem is. There's really no mystery. You see where that twitching muscle is, you inject that area, and that tends to reduce the, the effect that you're seeing. Um, oromandibular dystonias as well as laryngeal dystonias will also be a problem. The, the laryngeal dystonias, you may have in, uh, encountered patients who come in and they have a squeaky voice or the voice is very halting because the muscles in, in the larynx tend to have a, a, a spasm. And again, this is something that can be treated by the ENT uh, doctors with the injection of botulinum toxin. Sometimes patients grind their teeth too much and it turns out that injecting Botox into the, into the masseter muscle will reduce that. And you can see the change in the shape of this particular patient's face as a result of that injection. You can see how the, the area under the ears is much more hypertrophied before and then after. It turns out that in, in Japan, this turns out to be a, uh, a cosmetic treatment that's utilized because the patients there wanted to improve the shape of the face, make it less rectangular, and make it more oval. Spasticity, of course, is again one of the more common areas that are treated, and we know that there are patients who are post-stroke, post-operative patients who have uh, horrible spasms and, and contractures, and these are uh, significantly reduced with the repeat injections of botulinum toxin. Cerebral palsy patients will often have problems with drooling. Well, the salivary gland is a secretory gland, and what happens when you inject botulinum toxin? You reduce the secretions. So there's been studies that show that when you inject the gland uh, on, th on that side of the face as well as the contralateral gland, you will clearly reduce the amount of drooling. And this is a quality of life issue for these patients. Don't forget, very often cerebral palsy patients are totally mentally competent. The problem is, of course, they're their, their muscular problems. It's kind of interesting that when you're dealing around the eye, you can use botulinum toxins for two totally opposite problems. Here's an instance of hyperlacrimation, and this could be the result of stenosis of the lacrimal duct in the lower inner corner of the eye, but it also could be the result of paresis of the facial nerve. As a result of this, you can inject botulinum toxin into the lacrimal gland and reduce the secretions into the eye. This is going to cause less tearing. On the other hand, it turns out if you have dry eye, not enough tearing, one of the ways that you could use botulinum toxin is by injecting the lower eyelid into that uh, preceptal and preorbicular portion, reducing the strength of that pump that pushes the tears from the lacrimal gland into the lacrimal duct 
and the tears will stay in contact with the eye longer. So there's two op totally opposites effect from the use of botulinum toxin. There are patients that have allergic rhinitis that are not the result of an identifiable allergen. These are patients who are using up tissues like crazy, and they're really not controlled unless they're given things as steroids. However, you can use botulinum toxin to either inject or soak those nasal membranes, and this will reduce the amount of, of the, the runny nose that these patients get. And you can see such examples. You can soak a, a, a dental roll and insert it into the nasal antrum, or you can see on your right side an injection of the medicine into the turbinate. Now, I certainly wouldn't advise any of us to do the injections, but just think of the effect that you might have if you take a little botulinum toxin, soak a pledget, shove it up somebody's nose, leave it there for a few hours, and have them come back the next day and see what sort of reduction in secretions they have. One day you could treat one side, another day you treat the other side, so you're not totally blocking the passageway. When patients have corneal tears, the treatment tends to be sewing the lids shut. Uh, this uh, can be obviated if you consider using botulinum toxin. So instead of the tarsorafi, you can actually produce a, a tosis of the lid, which creates a covering for that tear and will enhance healing. Same thing can be accomplished when you're treating a patient with Graves' disease. The exophthalmus can be less of a problem if you induce ptosis of that upper lid. You may have heard that there's reported studies showing the improvement of Raynaud's syndrome. And of course, so many of us have these patients coming into our office. It may not be something we've been treating, but just think of possibly helping these patients with injections of botulinum toxin along the fingers. We had experience in our office where we tried this on a patient, and we got an, a noticeable, not a dramatic result, but in the, re, in the reported studies, they actually indicated that within hours, the blood flow improved and it persisted for many, many months. And in some patients, the actual symptoms of Raynaud's did not return. This is a pretty incredible finding. And again, this is something that we can do in the office when that patient walks through the doors. Pain is something that we do encounter a lot. And I think it's worthwhile to be aware that botulinum toxin can be used in a variety of ways. The pain fibers are referred to as these nociceptors. And what they are is they're thin, myelinated or unmyelinated nerves that just go up to the skin. The interesting thing is that the effect on pain fibers tends to outlast the pain, the, the results that we see on muscles. And this is probably the result of the botulinum toxins acting on different receptors. And again, I talked about substance P and glutamate, and there are probably others that are affected that reduce the sensitivity of these nociceptors to the stimuli. It also turned out, let me just sort of go back a second and point out that the reduction of pain was not necessarily induced when you're, when you're taking that needle and, and inserting it deep into the area where the pain is felt. It turns out that intradermal injections worked just as well as deeper injections. And they feel that this is the result of the uptake of the botulinum material, which is actually going further back to the nerves and possibly into the CNS system. Obviously, if you're treating pain, you can treat lower back pain with this. You can treat osteoarthritic pain. There have been injections directly into the knee that have reduced pain. Trigeminal neuralgia. Uh, 
Again, you inject where the pain is. If a patient is, comes to the office and they say, I'm having pain right over here, you take the botulinum toxin and you inject it into that area. You don't have to go deep into the nerve. You can inject superficially into the dermis. Migraine headaches, you're injecting where the pain is. I'm not sure if any of you have had the opportunity. But again, if, it's, it's always surprising when a patient comes in and you're treating them for their corrugator muscles, and then a couple of weeks later they call up and they forgot to tell you that they have migraine headaches, but the reality is, is that their migraine headaches have miraculously gone away. Well, it turns out that patients may have those migraines starting in the back of the head, about right around the, oct oct the um, occiput, not the octopus. And it turns out that, that you can inject that area directly and patients will have a, a significant amount of relief. Again, it's a matter of injecting where the pain is. Again, just examples of where that is. Interestingly enough, again, there's more and more uses coming up all the time. Every time you, you do a search, you'll see new uses. There are kids that have congenital hip subluxation, and as a result of the tension on the, of the muscles surrounding that hip joint, they'll frequently have dislocation of that hip joint. When, that partic when those muscles are injected with botulinum toxin, it reduces the need for surgically repairing that dislocation. And they're even indicating, in, at least in this particular article, that it may replace soft tissue surgery as a prophylactic procedure for these kids, which is a pretty remarkable indication. Everybody knows about the usual indication for sweating in the axilla, in the palms, and the soles, and I'm sure you're also aware that it could be uh, treated for compensatory sweating as well. Hopefully everybody's had a chance to do it, and I think these are extremely grateful patients. There was a study last year that showed that there was a 97% satisfaction rate when this was treated with botulinum toxin. And again, why does it work so well and why, do these, what, why does the result last longer than the effect on muscles? Again, different neurotransmitters, different impact of the medicine. In this particular instance, they're talking about substance P binding sites. And also it has an effect because you don't particularly get the sprouting of nerves going to, the, to those uh, secretory glands. Okay. And this is just an example of Fry syndrome, an example of compensatory sweating after uh, parotidectomy, and you can see the results. There are studies going on using iontophoresis for, this for the, for the um, application of botulinum toxin, and it's been clearly shown that you can apply it the problem is that the iontophoretic devices, they have very small um, areas in which they work. And to get an iontophoretic device with a large area apparently is the, is the problem. But it can be pushed through the skin by iontophoresis. And this is a study that actually showed that the botulinum toxin went deep into the muscle, that brownish, that deeper golden brown color in the lower picture indicates the presence of the botulinum toxin in the muscles. Dishydrotic eczema, you know, years ago it was pointed out that dishydrotic eczema has nothing to do with sweating. But it turns out that if you inject botulinum toxin into the palms of patients with, with dishydrotic eczema, there are some patients that will improve. So again, the question remains, What's the relationship? The reality, though, is that there is benefit. And as a result, if you have patients that are struggling and you, can, you can't control them well enough with topical steroids, sometimes you're giving them a burst of oral or systemic steroids, there's no reason why we can't try using botulinum toxin injections for those patients. Chromidrosis is merely another form of sweating. You're getting the color because of the, um, uh, in the apocrine glands. 
And this is, of course, reduced. Uh, facial flushing, it's been used for the flushing related to rosacea. The problem with, this con with treating this is that some patients may get an effect on the um, underlying muscles, and you can see the patient showing a asymmetry as a result of the injection of the botulinum toxin. On the other hand, again, if care is taken and you inject the medicine as little wheels into the skin, you can reduce the incidence of that. If you're staying in the central portion of the face, you're not going to be affecting muscles that are going to ex affect expression. So again, if you have a patient who is just not controllable with the typical um, materials available in our armamentarium, then you may as well give a try to botulinum toxin. It's even been shown to be helpful for acne. Now, this is kind of interesting. The article that I saw was in one of the um, uh, non-peer-reviewed um, non journals, but it turns out that the doctor who was reporting this has actually taken out a use patent. So it actually may be that you're not seeing a lot of uh, notoriety about this just because it turns out that the manufacturers of the botulinum toxins are probably not going to be able to, to make a big sale of this if somebody else has the use patent. But again, this has been reported a number of times. If you have patients who you really have trouble with, and again, this is helpful for those patients with very oily skin, the use of botulinum toxin can reduce those symptoms. Anything where there's maceration is going to be helped if you use botulinum toxin. You can get a patient with intertrigo. This happens to be an area where it was a case of inverse psoriasis. Anything with maceration is going to be improved with botulinum toxin. This article uh, showed improvement with ebullosa simplex. Why? Because it turns out that the maceration in the foot was creating more blisters when the person was wearing, was wearing foot gear. And again, if you decrease that amount of irritation, the friction and rubbing, you're going to get fewer blisters from the ebullosa simplex. Ecrine hamartomas have been improved. Painful lyomyomas have been improved. And there's been very, very few side effects, systemic side effects with this. There was one study in which they used quite a large amount of botulinum toxin A. It was 100 units per hand. In this particular patient, they reported symptoms of blurry vision, indigestion, and a sore throat. But of course, a month later, this went away. Now, there have been more severe complications of botulinum toxin reported, and I'll mention those in a few moments. But in terms of the general dermatologic use of this, these products, they clearly are very, very, very safe. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the, the two products that are most commonly used. We have botulinum toxin from uh, Medicis and botulinum toxin from Allergan. And as a result, we have new names that we have to be familiar with, new um, generic names. And abobotulinum toxin A is known as Dysport, and onabotulinum toxin A is known as Botox. And this is included in all the um, packaging materials as well. So be familiar if you happen to see those particular designations. How do you compare the different formulations? Well, it turns out that you can't compare them unit by unit because each manufacturer assigns the, the units and it, it, it is not something that is um, standardized. So you find that you're getting botulinum toxin from Allergan in a 100 unit bottle and you're getting the botulinum toxin A from uh, Medicis, which is in a 300 unit bottle. Well, there's a difference. If you use them unit per unit, you're not going to see the same results. 
In this particular study, they showed that at a ratio of 1 to 2.5, so you have to use 2.5 more of the Dysport than Botox, they found that there, there wasn't quite the same effect with both of them. But when you went up to 3 to 1, then you had an equivalent result, and 4 to 1, there was no difference. Okay, 3 to 1, 4 to 1 in this particular study. Now, interestingly enough, if you've gone to any presentations, most of what I'm hearing is the fact that they're saying use it in 2.5 to 1. In our office, we use it in a 3 to 1 ratio. So whenever you use, if we're going to be using 10 units of Botox, we're going to be using 30 units of Dysport. This is just an example showing that 1 to 3 ratio being equivalent. So one side was injected with Dysport, one side injected with Botox, and you can see the equivalency uh, at six months out, day 180. This is another portion of this study, and this was kind of an interesting one. You can see across the forehead, they compared the effects of the two products in two different ways. The effect on muscular activity and the effect on sweating. And so you can see those anhydrotic halos on the forehead. And you can see on, most easily on, the, on your lower left, you can see there's four halos across that forehead. Well, it turns out that on one side of the forehead was Botox and on the other side was Dysport. But also, the most lateral ones were injected intramuscularly. The more medially ones were injected intradermally. And if you look very carefully, you'll notice that the fusion of the medicine was more when it was injected intradermally and less intramuscularly. Now, I'm not sure how this affects your, your regular use, but when I think about using this, if, if I want precision with these products, I'm going to realize that you really have to inject it a little more deeply. Yes, you may run into more bruising, but you're more likely not to have as much of a, an issue with diffusion if you're injecting a little more deeply. So just you have to sort of balance those two areas out. But again, this was a one to three relationship between the two products. And again, more studies. And each of the uh, individuals in the studies showed the same results. Um, Doris Hexel, she practices in Brazil and does a lot of uh, presentations on both products. In her particular study, she showed equivalency at a ratio of 1 to 2.5. Um, another uh, thing that she pointed out was that the reconstitution of these products, and this was an earlier study, but of course you can reconstitute these products and keep them for much, much longer than the manufacturer would have ever suggested. And this is true for Dysport as well. This was one that was reported last, last, uh, in the last few months. And again, in this study, it was for a shorter amount of time, but it easily showed that for at least two to three weeks, the material could be stored without having an effect on its potency. A few little tidbits about these products. Um, it turns out that, of course, we use these products for many patients, and there's always a question of what, because, you know, the, the vials we get are supposed to be single patient use vials. Well, you're sticking your needle in and out. It turned out that that Murad Alam did a study on, these, on using these single-use vials multiple times and found when using the bacteriostatic saline, there was no bacterial growth encountered. Now, obviously, you have to use sterile technique when you're sticking these needles in and out, but be aware that there's articles that have shown the safety of repeated use of these vials. 
Um, if you want to reduce pain, there was one study that said try injecting through a follicular orifice. This is something that has been taught for many years, especially when injecting anesthetic as well. Use the follicular orifice. But I think for most of us, when you're using the very small needles, the 30, 31, 32 gauge needles, clearly pain is, is not much of an issue in most patients. Uh, again, another study comparing not only the refrigerated but even frozen botulinum toxin found that there was no difference in the effectiveness of these products. So yes, keep it in the refrigerator. Um, in, I don't think there's any reason to freeze it for most of our use, but clearly the efficacy of this product lasts, uh, and this has been shown with multiple, multiple studies. You're also aware that the package insert says that when you reconstitute this, you're supposed to very carefully let the diluent into the bottle, let it be sucked in by the vacuum in the bottle. Well, it turned out that this particular article uh, was written and the authors were a little more vigorous with how they put the, the material in. They actually shook them up. And in this particular instance, they didn't find any difference in the potency of the products. So again, maybe we're very careful with the product and maybe we don't have to be quite as careful. If you inject a little, if you utilize a little bit of epinephrine in with your product, you can actually enhance the duration of effect. And this study was done by Hayes Gladstone up in, in the Stanford area. And you can see by these bars how the material had a greater effect. The darker bars are the material with epinephrine. And you can see the longer duration of action in both of those groups. So that's kind of interesting. We haven't used it in our office, but I don't see any reason why we shouldn't try that uh, to see if that works for us as well. As I mentioned, we've got this topical botulinum toxin product. It, it's been in phase two studies. However, there was actually a, an article on this um, last year, and this showed that the use after 12 weeks significantly reduced the uh, appearance of wrinkles on the subject patients. So again, we may be coming up with a couple of more products in the next year or two. What about all these reports of the harmful effects of botulinum toxin? Um, you know that the media last year latched on to a couple of these and talked about the potential of uh, uh, symptoms, including death from Botox. Well, what's the real facts here? Turned out in one of those studies, Italian investigators were injecting the, the base of the whiskers on cats, or, or I'm sorry, on rats, and they noticed that there was retrograde movement of the material to the brain. Now, I just told you what happens, what they found when you inject intradermally and the theory of, of why that works, because the molecules picked up. And this is something that really is not as, as much of a problem as it is a benefit for the use of botulinum toxins, especially when we're talking about pain. The other study showed that when you injected this into the soleus muscle of cats, it actually was found in the plantaris muscle as well. Well, I, I think all of us know that if you're going to inject a large amount of botulinum toxin into any area, you're going to get a certain amount of diffusion. So I don't think that this is something that is surprising either. The most serious problems that have occurred include patients with such things as cerebral palsy, or post-stroke patients that have horrible limb spasticity. In these particular instances, these patients were injected with large volumes of botulinum toxin. 
And in these particular patients, they may have had problems swallowing, which required the, the, the use of feeding tubes. They may have had respiratory difficulty because of the inability to inflate the lungs. These are the instances in which botulinum toxin has been associated with serious complications. But in terms of dermatologic use, there has not been the serious, these serious complications have not been found. And most of the side effects occur as a result of annoying weaknesses of the muscle. Clearly, if somebody is going to inject the platysmal muscle too aggressively, there may be a, a difficulty swallowing or a weakness in, in lowering or raising the neck. These are things that you have to know when you're injecting this particular product. Um, and again, in, in an article uh, that the FDA, uh, in reports from the FDA, they indicated that there were 180 cases of dysphagia, aspiration, or pneumonia, which, quite frankly, when you consider the number of people injected with botulinum toxin, is a very, very small number. And again, 16 fatalities mostly occurring in individuals with severe muscular disorders. So. I showed you how botulinum toxin can, uh, you know, can, can keep you from having to run to the bathroom as much for that Broadway show, how it might be able to make your uh, sitting less uncomfortable on that long car ride, how it might uh, decrease your weight um, if it's injected into the stomach. I'm not sure how many people are going to run out and have that done. Um, it's going to help with, with problems of tearing. It's going to stop those uh, laryngeal ticks. And of course, it's going to decrease the amount of money you spend on cleaning costs um, for, for uh, hyperhidrosis. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's, these innovations have been reported. And I think there are many more innovations to come. And we may even see some of that in the next few years from people sitting in the office, sitting in the audience right now. I think the idea is to think outside the box. We've got a product with multiple uses. And occasionally, it's worthwhile trying it in an off-label way to see what effect it has. In most instances, the biggest complication is going to be a lack of, of, of satisfaction for the patient, because if we raise their hopes too high, maybe they're not going to be happy. But if we keep things reasonable and we tell the patients we're trying something unique, it may help, it may not, then I think we have a chance of discovering some additional uses for botulinum toxin. I've given you my email address so that if you have any, any questions uh, after the meeting, you're welcome to email me, and I certainly will be happy to answer them. And if you have any questions now, I'll be happy to answer those as well. I don't know if this is on. Can you clarify what you were saying about intradermal versus intramuscular on the forehead? Because I thought you wanted to get a little bit of diffusion, so you had fewer injections. Well, my, my personal feeling is I would rather not get diffusion if I can help it. I, I would rather be more precise with where I'm injecting these products. Now, if you're trying to get an effect on sweating or oil production, yes, it does help to have some diffusion. My own feeling is that I'd rather know where the medicine is going to have the effect. And, and you get that more predictably by injecting a little more deeply into the skin. So and on the forehead, you like to do intramuscular? Say that again? On the forehead, you do intramuscular. I do both. I, I do both. But again, when you want precision, remember that you see less diffusion. Now, in that particular study, don't forget, the, the, the diffusion was, was assessed by virtue of sweating. And of course, sweating is the sweat glands are in the deeper dermis, right? They're not in the muscle. So there was an effect that, because of that, you saw an effect of greater diffusion in, intradermally as well. So I think that has an impact. But I think if you want diffusion, 
you inject, if you want less diffusion, you inject smaller amounts, smaller amounts, and make it more injections. And that's going to help also, because studies have shown that the larger volume that you inject, the greater the diffusion as well. So it's not always important to inject only two or three spots on the patient, because if you're injecting larger volumes, you're going to have maybe more uncontrolled effect of the medicine. So my feeling is that you may as well put a couple of more pinpricks in, use smaller amounts of the medication, and have a more precise effect of the medication. I had one more question. When they're injecting into organ systems, like for the gastric emptying, does it last three to four months, just like it would yes. anywhere else? Right. Thank you. It's, it's shorter than the lap band. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I've asked this question before to other uh, practitioners, and I'm wondering, when you're repeatedly injecting a muscle with Botox, over time, doesn't it atrophy? So if you're doing it for a cervical dystonia, wouldn't the, eventually the head be tilted to the side like 20 years from now, because we don't even know? Well, you, you raise an interesting question, uh, because many years ago when we started using botulinum toxin, many people thought that if you repeatedly inject these muscles, the muscle will atrophy. And as a result, maybe the, the, the uh, creases are going to stay away forever. But it turns out that the muscles are really quite um, capable of recovering their strength once you start using it. I mean, we've seen this for years when kids have casts put on. You see that there's a big difference in the, side of the size of the muscles. On the other hand, within weeks, the size of the muscle comes back. What I've been noticing is that we can increase the duration between injections because patients aren't using it and so it takes a little longer for the muscle to come back, but nobody has ever reported permanent atrophy from the botulinum toxins. But that is, that's for how many years now? How many years? Yeah, I'm just well, wondering. botulinum toxin, it, it, it sort of gained most, most of the notoriety when it began being used for cosmetic purposes, was like in the early 90s, like 90, 93, 94. Okay. But botulinum toxin had been used since the mid 80s for the ocular man, for the ocular problems, yeah. for strabismus and ocular tics. So. And those people are, do not have like any. There's eye never been any permanent permanent okay. uh, loss of muscle strength. Okay. Thank you. Yes. In your research regarding pain management and pain syndromes, any, did you come across any literature regarding reflex sympathetic dystrophy? I think so. Any yeah. success? Uh, I mean, it's, any, anything that has pain, somebody's written an article showing that it helps. Okay. Absolutely. And the, uh, the studies are all pretty consistent. There's some, some patients will have a greater response than others. I think it's partly because people have to learn really where to inject it, how to inject it, how frequently to inject it, what's the best dosage to use, you know, that may, that may be yet something that's going to come out. But anything that has to do with pain ha has been treated. And in most instances, there's a report of success. There may be reports saying that they didn't have as much success, but it's typically been successful. If you have a patient with, with a reflex uh, sympathetic dystrophy, I definitely would try it. Okay, Sometimes the problem is these patients have such large areas of discomfort you're, you're, you're going to have to say, well, we've got to use, you know, 100 units of botulinum toxin. It's not covered by insurance. Are you going to mind paying $500 for the bottle? All right. Thank you very much. Yes. Just to uh, add to the gentleman's uh, comments, uh, Stanford University just completed a study for reflex sympathetic dystrophy in the lower extremities, but the results haven't been released yet. And, and what was the result? Uh, they have not released the results yet, but it was uh, just done at Stanford. I believe this last summer. Thank you. 
Well, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the meeting.